tired of that same old, same old breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Same old tasting scrambled eggs, burger, that dinner steak, ribs, or pork chops. Why not add a little bit of spice or just a touch of heat to make the difference? Change that scrambled egg with a little bit of Johnny Fabulous's John Cena Sr.'s Million Dollar Jalapeno Hot Sauce. Great on burgers, steaks, chops, and those barbecued ribs. Luzi energy drink. Yeah, it's that good. Episode two of Higher and Higher, the Leonard Wayne Show, and Mr. Leonard Wayne is your host. Uh, where we left off at was talking about suicide, suicide prevention. I'm going to let Leonard have the floor, and uh, it's showtime. Thank you, Tim. You know, it's interesting. People ask me all the time, how do I personally deal with the uh, tragic event of my dad killing my mother before taking his life, my best friend killing himself. I also had another good friend named Robert Elliott, was probably one of the most uh, talented motocross riders, rode for Suzuki, ended up taking his life because he was looking at a 30-day jail sentence. 30 days. Just couldn't handle it. And this is a guy that literally did things on a motorcycle that would blow my mind. 
I had a friend that lost a, a business opportunity, Mark Sumner, jumped out of a ninth story window. People don't realize you're leaving people behind that love you. And we now have to deal with trying to figure out why you didn't call us, why you didn't give us an opportunity to love you up, to make you realize this too shall pass. You're going to get through this. No matter what it is, you're loved. We're going to get through this. And that's what's so important. I want to remind the listeners, my website, leonardwayne.com, has my phone number, has my email. If you're contemplating suicide, if you know someone who is, please allow me the pleasure of sharing love with you to where you realize it's a temporary situation. You're going to be better because of going through it. Be vulnerable enough to pick up the phone. I heard that because of the epidemic going on right now with young people taking their lives, they're setting up a new hotline number similar to 911. And ironically, the people are finding out that you're getting a recorded message. And I think it's appalling. You can call Alcohol Anonymous and a live person will answer the phone and try to help you with your addiction. We need to address this. I don't know if the listeners are aware of it, but we had over 100,000 overdose young people last year. 100,000. Fentanyl is an epidemic. It's the border and young people don't realize gummy bears are laced. Cannabis is laced. So they think they're taking a pill and it's laced with fentanyl. And it's killing people. It's tragic. I just think for people that are dealing with that, first and foremost, I obviously can relate. I've had nine of my close friends, including my father and my uncle Howard. He hung himself over the social service building with a sign that said, fuck you. Are you serious? I mean, talk about a statement. But it's just so sad. I actually thought it might be a gene in my uh, father's family line because I also found out another uncle of mine had attempted to take his life. It's just amazing to me how people don't realize Satan's favorite tool is to make you feel so unloved, so unworthy. Why not just take my life? And sometimes people are doing it to try to punish people. I'll show them. But yet again, you're leaving people to deal with the tragedy of you're no longer here. So I just think it's so important that people understand it's nothing to be ashamed of. If you feel that depressed to where you're actually considering taking your life, Pick up the phone and call me, and I'll love you up, free of charge. All you do is pick up the phone. It's heavy. Pick it up and call. So let's talk about something else as far as that goes along the same lines. There are doctors that prescribe medication, literally over-prescribe medication, and will write scripts for anybody at any time, no matter what the consequences so some of those doctors are addicts themselves. And I know you have actually written a book about that. Do you want, you want to talk about that? 
Yes, the book I'm working on now is called The High Doctor Will See You. And it is amazing because, again, I have the pleasure of working with physicians in recovery. And a lot of them have read my book, Higher and Higher. And they want to tell me how they're amazed at all the things I've been through. And I always remind them, well, some of the stories you've shared with me are mind-boggling. I'm talking doctors that have substituted meds for terminally ill patients to take them themselves and been caught. I'm talking about doctors that have run over their dog, pulling out of the parking lot because they're so intoxicated. I'm talking about cardiologists showing up at major hospitals so intoxicated that, again, it's like, how did you drive here? You're getting ready to do open heart surgery. We had three physicians last year all have to go to federal penitentiary because of writing scripts. I had one, you'll find this funny, he was a Mormon and he tried to say, well, I didn't make that much money. I'm like, are you serious? You had the FBI film you wearing a camera, writing Oxycontin scripts, and you were high when you were writing the scripts. You had people driving 65 miles to your clinic. I wonder why. I have doctors that have uh, manipulated female patients into trading sex for drugs. I have doctors that have, again, been so addicted to Oxycontin that they were taking 100 pills a day. And I'm like, wait a minute, 100 pills a day? Maybe you're exaggerating. And they're adamant. Oh, no. I'll share a story you'll find humorous. I did anyway. This is a top surgeon at Cedar Sinai, and he's got his white coat on, and he's driving, and he runs over a homeless guy in the crosswalk. He gets out of his car, and in his pocket, seven Oxycontin fall to the ground. He's more concerned about picking up the pills than rendering aid to the homeless gentleman that he's just clipped in the crosswalk. Well, now the police show up. And of course, the police see the white coat. So they're immediately, oh, you're a physician. And he throws the homeless guy in his car, takes him to Cedar Sinai, still again, more concerned about his pills. They now not only caught him substituting the pills for terminally ill patients, which he justified by saying they're terminally ill, they don't need them if you can believe what I just said. And they took him directly to the pharmacist and said, no, 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 this is Tylenol. This is an Oxycontin. You're taking the Oxycontin and giving them Tylenol. These are some of the stories I've heard. And just when I think I've heard them all, another physician shows up and shares his story. We had one of the top surgeons at Hogue Hospital get so drunk, so passed out on Oxycontin, that because he slept on his arm, his arm lost blood. And when they finally rescued him, they almost had to amputate his arm. Remember now, these are physicians that we entrust our lives to. I mean, we don't realize the long hours they work, especially when they're residents. We don't realize they're dealing with all kinds of pressure I mean, imagine coming in and telling somebody your husband just passed away. We weren't able to help him. I mean, they do deal with a lot of issues, but yet still, 
when they finally come into the program, and it is important the listeners know, this is a closed meeting for physicians only, and it's to protect their identity. And they open up and they proceed to tell some of the stories that you're like, no, no, you didn't just say that. Because truly, I believe I lived a pretty wild life. And I did my best to share some of that in my book, Higher and Higher. And yet the things I've heard, I felt compelled to start writing them down. And I asked my publicist, do you think anybody would be interested in reading a book called The High Doctor Will See You Now? And apparently she thinks there's an audience for it. I don't know if you do, Tim, but I'd be eager to know the listener's opinion. But I'm almost halfway through it. And every time I have the pleasure of coming to another meeting, I have uh, good ears and I listen and I'll hear something and say, oh my gosh, we had one of the top veterinarians. I mean, this guy was able to do open heart surgery on dogs. And he had a problem with crystal meth, prostitutes, and he'd go to Tijuana and he'd disappear for like four or five days. And he got so whacked out that now his license is in jeopardy. A lot of the listeners won't be aware of this. There used to be a thing for physicians called diversion. And for some reason in 2017, the medical board abolished diversion. So you can't go to your supervisor and say, I've got a problem with drugs and alcohol, and they keep you protected and shield your license. Now, once you get caught, you're now gonna be scrutinized for seven years. You're gonna be required to be 24 seven for urine test. And to lose your medical license, there aren't a lot of jobs that pay four or $500,000 a year. So it's going to be pretty humbling for you to realize what I'm going to do now. But this individual was so depressed that he took his life. And even my own veterinarian made the comment, this was one of the most talented vets he had ever met. And for him to, again, feel so defeated, he took his life. Because again, I'm no longer going to be a doctor. When they come in my office, the first thing I do, Timothy, is I go, you got to take your white coat off. You're an addict alcoholic now. So take the coat off, stop trying to be the doctor, and listen to my suggestions. I actually use a workbook that NA has produced, and it helps them go through the steps and step one is admitting you're powerless over drugs and alcohol. If you could stop, you already would have stopped. Anesthesiologists are some of the worst. And it's because they have access to it. I've got one Filipino. He would wear his scrubs into other hospitals. He knew where to go. He'd go in and kick it. <laughs> He'd end up passed out in a soundproof room. A nurse would find him. It's like, who are you? You don't even work here. And a lot of these physicians are on the board of these major hospitals. So they're not only directly connected to the top officials. So they're trying to, again, what do we do? I mean, you're on the board. Uh, the public isn't aware that this is an epidemic. If they had any idea, I'm talking, I have a female doctor who is the head pediatrician of Stanford. I mean, this woman's brilliant. And yet she's not able to realize I'm an addict. And that's why, again, first step is admitting I'm powerless. That's the ego. See, that'll be part of tonight's topic. 
Ego is what made us feel that, well, we're successful. We're allowed to drink. They would blame the pharmacist. You know how many samples we get? Really? They're going to blame the pharmacist? But they use excuses just like we use excuses as addicts, alcoholics. They just don't realize now it's got you to a point where you are powerless. And it's humbling for a doctor that's supposed to always, especially surgeons. I mean, a surgeon isn't supposed to go, I don't know what to do. A surgeon's supposed to be able to give you the ability to believe he's going to save my life. But it's an honor for me. And I remind myself, again, my God has such a sense of humor. Because for the kid with dyslexia, for the kid that was raised on the other side of the tracks, to now not only be a doctor working with physicians, tell me my God doesn't have a sense of humor. I also feel so honored when I'm speaking at one of these events and I'll have a couple doctors raise their hand. I read your book, Dr. Wayne, and I want to ask, what was the scariest thing you did? I mean, you not only were working for the Teamsters, Diamond Heist, Arson, what was the scariest thing that that cliff you jumped off? What was that, a 105 foot cliff? And I tell him, no, the scariest thing I ever did was writing that book and divulging to you what I'd kept hidden for almost 40 years because I didn't want anyone to know. It's like somebody with, if I may, stained underwear. You don't want people to see, oh my gosh, I've got stained underwear. And yet the Holy Spirit prompted me and it was pretty loud. I want you to write a book and I want you to call it higher and higher because that's what you were trying to do, right? You use money to get high. You use women to get high. You use drugs to get high. When I was smuggling cocaine for the Teamsters, they would send me on the Princess Cruise Line, and I would do a 15-day cruise out of Miami. And when I'd get to Caracas, Venezuela, I'd meet a man named Walter who'd give me eight kilos of pure cocaine. And I would now keep it on the ship until we rendezvoused again in Alcapoco, and he would drive it across the border. Well, of course, as an addict, I had to unroll some kilos and it had such a pungent odor, it was beyond my belief. It was, this is pure cocaine. It's like, oh my gosh. And I had half the ship, of course, females, coming into my private promenade suite and partaking. I had the ship photographer. We'd go on these, we went to Balboa, Panama. I wanted to get a real Panama hat. And I remember we were just whacked. But it fascinates me looking back at these crazy things I did. It proves, again, God always had me in his hand, was always protecting me. It's like, as crazy as you are, I have a plan for you. So eventually you're going to grow up and you're going to trust me. And I'm going to give you the ultimate high. I'm going to give you a high that doesn't wear off. Because for the listeners that have done cocaine, they know I need another bump. I need another bump. For the alcoholics out there, I need another drink. I need another shot. Well, with this, this is the ultimate high, because I can pray anytime, day or night. A lot of people nowadays think that, again, that's feminine. It's like, what? You need to pray? Well, if I don't pray, I might hurt you. Mm -hmm. See, I go back to that person that hurts people. You don't want me to do that, do you? And they're, oh, no, no, I don't want you to do that. So it's amazing how prayer has made me more loving. It's made me more vulnerable. It's allowed me to say to grown men, I love you, man. 
I mean, you know personally, Tim, since the moment I met you. Love you, brother. How many times have I how many times have I asked you when we're having a conversation related to work? Would you allow me to end the conversation with a prayer? And I pray for you and your family and continued success. It's not about, Lord, give me a new Mercedes. That's not what my prayers are about. Right. So my thing is the definition of this show, Higher and Higher, is because you went through levels of your life where you were trying to get that next high. So tell the listeners, the audience, because um, you lived the life. You help people. You've We lost contact. Oh, okay. So what I was saying is um, you live the life that you speak of. So you live the life. You live the life um, that you speak about trying to help others, you know, with their problems. Every problem, there's a solution. Let the people out there know, man, like um, how you initially started living the life of crime. How did you get into what you... How did that road lead people as being a criminal to start off with? Well, we're breaking up a little. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. You're kind of coming in and out, so I just don't know if I'm doing the same. Well, I was asking is um, let the people know, man, like your background, like you know, you, you live the life of crime. Like, how did you get into that into that lifestyle? Well, it's interesting enough. It was high school. Uh, there was a gentleman that his dad was connected with the Teamsters, and. Uh, Back in high school, we used to uh, put on the boxing gloves when you had a, a problem with somebody. And uh, this individual thought he was a pretty talented boxer. And I proceeded to pummel him. So he went home and kind of shared with his dad. And his dad contacted me and said, hey, uh, I'd kind of like to talk to you about uh, your boxing skills. And I said, well, what is there to talk about? And one thing led to another, and at the time, there was this company called Checkered Cabs, and they had went mm -hmm. on strike. So he made me a proposition about uh, every cab driver, a scab, uh, I knocked out and took the microphone out of the vehicle. It was worth $250 to me. I go, really? So I think the first night I took four guys out before the dispatcher finally told them, there's a big guy out knocking people out, so you better don't watch where you go. Then, ironically, I ended up being uh, Ken Norton, who was the heavyweight champion sparring partner. And I'm at the Olympic Auditorium, and I'm working out with Kenny. Uh, Kenny was a fabulous lover. I mean, a good brother, uh, a man that loved me. He was a big fan of Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. And at the time, there was a man named Jimmy Hoffa, Frank Fitzsimmons and Jackie Presser, and they were running the Teamsters. And they asked if I'd be interested in now becoming a sergeant of arms. And I said, well, what does that entail? Well, you get a jacket, <laughs> a jacket, and you basically attend union meetings 
And if somebody gets out of line, you remove them. I can do that. So they took a liking to me. And ironically, without boasting, they actually made me a proposition to take me to Europe and train with Kenny LaSalle. And I could even take my girlfriend and become the next great white hope. They saw that much potential in my boxing skills. And this is interesting because I had started in martial arts, 1964. I was nine years old. And back then, I don't know if the listeners know this, there was no pads. We used to bare fist, bare feet, beat each other up. You had to wear a cup. That was the only thing required as far as safety equipment. Uh, Chuck Norris, Bob Wall, Mike Stone, they put on these tournaments called Four Season Tournaments. And they would get a basketball arena and put tape on the wooden basketball floor and make rings. And we would go in there and beat the hell out of each other. And you would get a trophy or a ribbon, but no money. And ironically, I'm now looking at being paid a lot of money as a professional boxer. So I remember coming home and telling my mom. And remember now, my mom was very special to me. And my mom begged me, begged me not to become a boxer. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, I could do this a couple of years, be a millionaire. I mean, what are you talking about? But because I loved her so much, I respected her wishes. But ironically, again, I was now addicted to money. Mm -hmm. So they asked me now if I would do arson. And I'm like, arson? And there was a company called Helms Bakery. Some of you might remember the Helms truck that went around your neighborhood, had the little ding, ding, ding. <laughs> well, they had a big yard over in Fullerton, California, and they wanted me to burn the trucks. Mm -hmm. So, of course, being an entrepreneur, I asked my good friend, Ray Savinick, to uh, help me on this assignment. And he would always look at me like, what are, what are you doing? Well, I had went to a lumber yard and I had taken a couple of large plastic bags and filled it up with sawdust. I had got gasoline and saturated the sawdust with gasoline. And I had put on overalls and taken one of those rollers that you see mechanics get on. And I had walked into the yard and rolled underneath like 15 trucks, looking like I was maintenancing, spreading this sawdust with gasoline on it. And I proceeded to light and the whole yard went up. It was in the paper. It was beyond belief. They were concerned that again, I, apparently they thought I was only going to burn one or two trucks. They didn't know I was going to burn the whole damn. But again, it was a big payday. And the gentleman that was paying me didn't have enough cash. And I remember looking him in the eye. Now remember, I'm a 17 year old kid. And I said, Skip, you don't want me to hurt you or burn your house down, do you? So magically, he was able to get the rest of the money he owed me. Then they had a gentleman that, again, was involved in uh, more um, dangerous work. And they asked if I would be inclined to participate in that. I go, what do you mean? They go, well, the Teamsters, they send a message. They use a pipe about this long, and they have uh, knuckles on both ends of it. And they want the pipe in a brown bag, and you'd put it under your arm like this, and you'd hit the individual with the pipe. Now, remember, this is a 30-year-old man driving me to different people's homes to use this pipe. And he would get so scared, he would be shaking in the car when I would come back after finishing a job. 
but it was interesting how it escalated. I can't hear you. Was there one thing in your life that made you turn to that criminal activities? Like what happened with your in your life? Was there something that, or was it just the love of money? I can make money real quickly if I go out and do this. Oh my gosh, Tim. It was absolutely the high of money. I mean, I now had become so accustomed to always having Benjamin Franklin's and showing people I wanted to impress you. I mean, I had bought an MGBGT sports car. I bought a Norton 750 Commando motorcycle. No one ever asked, where do you get this money? Mm -hmm. I mean, my first job at 15 years old was working for Vaughn's supermarket as a box boy. Mm -hmm. You'll find this interesting. Back then, Vaughn's didn't allow long hair. And I had long blonde surfer hair because I was a surfer. And I used to have to wear a short-haired wig and stick my hair underneath it. And of course, I think within the first month working there, the produce manager was a boxing enthusiast. And he took me under his wing and made me the assistant produce manager, paid more, and I now had access to the rear door. So I would procure bottles of liquor, put them in the outdoor dumpster, and I'd bring the gang the liquor and everybody knew, oh, here he comes, he's got the booze. So I was doing petty crime before I got involved with the Teamsters. I'll share one with you in Hollywood. This is now in the 70s. I'd moved to Hollywood. I was at Sammy Davis Jr.'s house, and I overheard a conversation. His wife was having a diamond courier come into town from San Francisco. So I had contacted one of the associates I had met through the Teamsters and told him about this and said, why don't you uh, put a gun to my head? because I'm going to be bodyguarding and uh, we'll take the, the diamonds. So ironically, we not only pulled this off, but in the book I described, the woman was a Swedish movie star that was the introduction. And her mother was a supposed psychic. And I remember her mother calling, I was living on Laurel Canyon at the time. I know you were involved in that diamond heist. And I'm like, really? Well, then you need to call the police. But I thought to myself, is this psychic stuff real? Does she really know? Because one of the things I learned early on is you don't talk about what you're doing because that's how criminals are caught. See, most criminals, it's not just good enough getting away with the heist. They make the mistake now if they got to tell everyone. Usually prostitutes are a girlfriend that now betrays them, gets in trouble. And of course, she rats out to the cops to save herself. And that's how you do major time. It is fascinating that when I wrote the book, Higher and Higher, I'm blessed to have an attorney that not only went to high school at USC with me, but I had him review it because of the statute of limitations. I wanted to make sure I wasn't divulging something that was gonna put me back in a precarious position. But it's amazing that again, I've done all these crazy things and never got caught and ended up going to federal prison for securities fraud. I mean, I don't know if I even shared this with you. I was sentenced by the first black federal judge, Vanessa Gilmore. And she was handling a big case called the Enron case, which was a huge Ponzi scheme. 
And it was fascinating because originally I was looking at 10 years. Uh, it got reduced to 28 months. But I remember when I wrote the book, I said, I've got to send a copy to Vanessa. And Vanessa is now retired, also writes books herself, children books. And she had responded, you know, Mr. Wayne, I knew you'd never be back in federal prison. A lot of people meet Jesus in prison, but they leave him at the gate. And I thought, interesting, because I'm sure you're aware, unfortunately, the statistics are most inmates end up back because they either feel that the tag felon is going to prevent them from getting a legitimate job, or a lot of them just feel that, again, that's where I'm more comfortable. But I knew that for me, it was a temporary vacation. And to this day, I'm honored to tell you, I still go to Terminal Island Penitentiary. And as a publisher author, I'm allowed to take my books higher and higher. And one of the inmates not only had his sister write a review on Amazon, and I'm honored to say there's 119 reviews now on Amazon for a self-published book called Higher and Higher by Leonard Wayne. And it's interesting because he expresses that it meant so much that I came and shared love. And when I do a speaking engagement, at a federal prison, I always ask inmates if they'd like to come up and share after I finish speaking. In this one particular event, we had the head of the Mexican mafia in a wheelchair. His two soldiers rolled him up and he said, today, it's not Terminal Island. Today, it's Love Island, because Leonard come love us up. And I thought, wow. And Tim, I'm not embarrassed to tell you, I went in the parking lot and I was crying because number one, just reliving that sound of <clears throat> I relived all of that ugly reality of incarceration. And for the listeners that don't know, I never realized I took my freedom for granted. Until I lost my freedom, I didn't realize how valuable it was. I mean, it's a very scary thing to be in a situation where you are a captive audience so with that being said, um, would you agree that most people who end up being where they are, it's because of the environment they were bred from? I, I believe personally that everything starts in the home. What's your uh, opinion? I agree with that because, again, in my case, um, my parents made me, starting at a young age, go to Sunday school. My parents tried to give the image of being Christians. Like I said, there was no alcohol in our house. There was no cigarettes. I was told that at one time they used to smoke and drink. But apparently when they had my sister and I, that wasn't something they were going to. I didn't know if it was finances because it was very tight. My mom had to cut coupons and go to numerous stores to make ends meet. But it's interesting when I was probably 11 or 12, uh, I now started asking the pastor questions that he couldn't give answers. I want to share this. Um, my dad tried three times to kill himself before he finally was successful. And the first time I remember, I was probably six or seven. And I came home and I saw paramedics in our driveway. And I remember asking my mom, what's going on? And of course, she was embarrassed to tell me, well, your dad tried to kill himself. The paramedic said he didn't really take the pills I guess the gas wasn't even turned on in this, the oven he put his head in. 
But of course, they pumped his stomach, which is rather uncomfortable. And I remember asking the pastor, and I put this in the book, um, I'm confused. Why does my dad try to kill himself if he's walking with Jesus? And mm -hmm. of course, he couldn't give me an answer. So I started realizing then, you know, you really don't have it. I mean, this this isn't what I'm looking for. And it's amazing how years later, I've not only come back, I'm closer. I do want to say again for the listeners, mm -hmm. I'm not promoting organized religion. I don't believe you have to go to church to serve the Lord. Church is a community of Christians that supposedly are supposed to give you fellowship. Some churches are very good at it. Others, unfortunately, are all in it for the money. And it's quite obvious because the majority of the sermon is on giving more money. My God doesn't need your money. I remind people, I don't have an offering basket. I don't need any donations. I do have clients that have given large donations because they want to support my cause. They have an abundant amount of money. And to them, to give a $7,000 gratuity is nothing. It's like you and I tipping a waiter seven bucks. But they know that my mission is to help people beat the devil. And that truly is my calling. I like people to understand. Single-minded purpose. My goal is to help you beat the devil. The devil wants you to use drugs and alcohol. That usually leads to promiscuous activity. I can say personally that most of the terrible things I did, I wasn't drunk or high. I wanted to have a clear head. After I finished the mission, I usually got pretty drunk or high because that was part of, again, my reward. I mean, it's like a dog. Do I get a reward now? I wanted to impress you. When you came over, I wanted to show you the fancy liquor. I mean, I've got the top shelf stuff. When, when you came to my house, I wanted to show you I have pounds of cannabis. See, I'm a Costco shopper. I don't buy ounces. I buy pounds. Let me show you. Let me show you. It was my God. And it controlled my life. Because I want to repeat, I hurt the people that love me the most. You know, a lot of people don't realize this. The umbilical cord you have with your mother is never really cut. The mother can feel what you're doing. So she knows when you're doing hinky things, and yet they feel helpless. They don't know really what to do to prevent you from doing it. But yet it's imperative that people hear that. And it's, it's so real. Because I'm sure you're aware, that's again why mothers have that sixth sense. It's like they kind of know you're on the wrong path. You're doing things that are going to really either get you killed or put you in prison. But we don't listen to them. We're on our own mission. We want to be independent. I've got a young man I'm working with now, 17 years old, and he's at that fork in the road. His dad is a retired police officer. And they've retained me because of reading my book. Again, you're the perfect candidate to help my son. I do want to boast a little bit. When I first met this young man, he was 16 years old. And he wrote on Amazon a beautiful review saying, I don't read books. I couldn't put this book down. This is probably the only book I've ever read from cover to cover. You really have to read it. 
I've had other people write things like this should be required for all high school students. Mm -hmm. I've had retired DEA agents say, um, I know for a fact what's in this book is not only accurate. As I said, my attorney clearly states at the front of the book, what you're about to read, I either witnessed or know people. This is real stuff. This guy was scary. And for him now to be walking around telling people to stay in the light, tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor and God is real. Because God touched my heart. God softened me, humbled me, helped me put my ego in check. I don't want people to think having an ego is something to be ashamed of. You should try to look well and present yourself well. Good, have good hygiene. But the difference is when you're living just to impress people. I mean, Tim, I know you know people you represent, that their whole thing is look at this, look at that. And are they happy? Are they happy? Because the ones that are really happy are usually giving. They're about giving. I just heard on the news that Shaq went to a restaurant and bought everyone there. I think it was $40,000 by bought dinner for everybody and didn't want anyone to know about it. I think it's important. I say that again. I have some clients that are very wealthy and it's funny because people believe money buys happiness. Mm -hmm. Believe me, that's not the truth. So this individual will come in and again, he'll be all depressed and I'll say, let's go and get something. I'll help you get happy. He goes, what? Come on. Now he wants to get in his Rolls Royce and I go, no, 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 come on. Let's just take my car. Let's take a little black Acura and we'll go to In-N-Out Hamburger and we'll buy 20 double-double burgers and we'll drive down Harbor Boulevard and start giving them out to homeless people. And if you got a dog, you get two. And by the second or third person, he goes, this is something. I go, because we're giving love, we're giving food and we're not doing it because the paper is here to take pictures. I mean, so many people, when they do things, they want notoriety. It's all about, I'm doing this, look at me. The people that do loving things and try not to get caught doing it are the ones that really feel the blessing of what it's about. And most That's of- That's actually a good part to end this episode.